Hi everyone, my name is Brian Fontanella, Portfolio Specialist here at Diamond Hill, and I'm joined by Nate Palmer, who is the Co-Portfolio Manager on Diamond Hill's Long Short Strategy. Nate, thanks for joining. It's good to be here. All right, so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how you manage the Long Short Strategy, some of the differences uh, in how we think about long and short positions, but first I thought maybe you could give a little bit of an overview uh, of our philosophy. So we describe ourselves as intrinsic value investors. Maybe explain to listeners what that means to us. Sure. We approach investing as taking an ownership stake in a business. Our research process is designed for us to think like business owners. We want to be thinking critically about businesses in the same way that an owner operator would be capable of. And we're looking for businesses that are being mispriced by the market. At the most basic level, we need to identify mispriced businesses and we need to ultimately be proven right about those individual businesses being mispriced. Another way of saying that is that we want to get more than what we're paying for. The best value propositions aren't necessarily found in the most statistically cheap stocks or stocks trading at the lowest multiples of current earnings or revenue. Sometimes there are great values to be found in statistically cheap businesses, but our process is designed to identify businesses that are mispriced relative to their long-term earnings power. Those businesses may look relatively cheap in the context of their current fundamentals, but we're really looking for businesses that are mispriced relative to the fundamentals that they'll be producing several years into the future. I'd emphasize that being approximately right about the future fundamentals of a business is crucial in determining our estimates of intrinsic value. And if we're right about the future fundamentals, the revenue and the earnings power, it'll ultimately be reflected in the market price of the business. So I think it's a pretty rational and understandable approach to investing but I can assure you there's an enormous amount of work that goes into doing it the way it's supposed to be done. So let's talk a little bit about the long short strategy itself. Maybe describe the structure of the strategy, uh, but also how it might fit into an investor's portfolio. Structurally, investors should expect a long short strategy to be managed at roughly 60% net exposure on average over long periods of time. We have latitude to adjust the net exposure based on the opportunity set at a given point in time. But my co-manager, Chris Bingaman, and I tend to think of normalized exposure for the strategy as being roughly 90% gross long and 30% gross short for 120% gross exposure and 60% net exposure. We ended 2021 at 121% gross exposure and just below 60% net exposure. As our longs outperformed our shorts during Q1 of 2022, and we adjusted some position sizes as prices moved during a relatively volatile quarter, our gross exposure came down to just below 115%, and net exposure was just below 58%. But over long periods of time, we'd expect for gross exposure to average around 120%, and net exposure to average around 60%. We've learned over time that there are a relatively wide range of ways in which our long short strategies used in investors' portfolios. Some of the common themes tend to be investors seeking favorable risk-adjusted returns, investors seeking the return of equities, but with less volatility than the overall market, and investors seeking a return that's more dependent on alpha or value add through stock selection in each the long book and the short book, rather than beta or the return of the equity market as a whole. If we're in an environment going forward of more modest equity market returns, long short strategies that have net exposure less than the market, but have the ability to add value through stock selection in each the long book and the short book seem likely to be appealing to investors who are seeking a different risk reward profile than what's offered by long only strategies. Okay, so I wanna spend a little more time on the short book today because I think that's what's maybe 
uh, a little bit more unique about this strategy, but just to start on the long side, what are you looking for in long positions? And maybe if you could just give an example of a business that we found attractive on the long side. Yeah, some of the characteristics of an ideal long investment include some form of durable and competitive advantage, and that can come in many forms. You know, the ability to grow with attractive incremental profit margins, a product or service that provides a strong value proposition to customers, growing end markets, taking market share within those end markets, a product or service that's not likely to be susceptible to obsolescence or replacement, and a management team that we trust to operate the business in the best interest of shareholders over time. You're almost never going to get all those characteristics in a single business. And it's important to emphasize that we want to get these characteristics at a market price that doesn't currently reflect their full value. If we pay full price for them, then we're not getting more than what we're paying for. We're focused on businesses where we can get some of these favorable characteristics at a discount to what they're worth. We always want to be making long investments at prices that are at a discount to intrinsic value of the business. If we do that, then there will be two sources of our investment return over time. A portion of our return will be attributable to price converging with the intrinsic value of the business. And another portion of our return will be attributable to the business growing its per share earnings power and thus growing in intrinsic value over time. A business that I think captures some of these characteristics and is a large position in the long short strategy is KKR, the alternative asset manager. Um, there are a few characteristics that we can talk through. You know, the first is uh, relatively strong industry tailwinds driven by growing allocations to private markets and private equity strategies. Uh, KKR has been a market share winner over time, and you know, we expect that to continue to be the case going forward. Um, they have some, some growth generated from newer strategies and uh, inflows from pretty attractive channels, including public pension plans that currently comprise about 50% of KKR's AUM. And so you know, when we look at the business, it's interesting that the market price of this business is much, much more volatile than our estimate of the intrinsic value of the business. Uh, you know, we initially uh, established a position in it with a stock price in the 20s uh, back in towards the end of 2019. Uh, and the stock price has been all over the place uh, between then and now. You know, over time, our estimate of intrinsic value has increased nicely. Um, but you know, if you looked at the volatility of our estimate of intrinsic value, uh, that volatility is much, much lower than the market price has been for KKR. And so, you know, we find situations like this appealing where we're able to identify a business where we have fairly high conviction that, you know, we know what intrinsic value is and we're able to establish an ownership stake at a meaningful discount to it. And intrinsic value is likely to continue to grow over time. Um, these, these can be ideal types of situations for investors like us. So another thing I wanted to ask about, we've got a good amount of exposure in the long short strategy to businesses that many think of as quote unquote growth stocks. So Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, for example, or Meta. Uh, and I think this sort of ties back into our intrinsic value philosophy, but maybe you could talk about why we view these stocks as value investments, despite how certain uh, indices or other investors might characterize them. Let's start by saying that we pay little to no attention to which style benchmarks individual businesses fall into when we're evaluating them as potential investments. For us, it's really about identifying businesses that we're able to purchase an ownership stake in at a discount to intrinsic value. At the foundational level, a business is worth the present value of its future cash earnings. And all else equal, a rational investor would pay more for a growing cash flow stream than for a stagnant or shrinking cash flow stream. 
And so with Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, these are businesses that we understand and know in a lot of depth and that we're able to add to the portfolio at discounts to our estimates of intrinsic value and that continue to trade at discounts to intrinsic value. And when we look at these businesses, um, you know, it tends to be pretty appealing when we can find businesses where we believe they're going to continue to generate substantial growth in operating income. You can generate growth in operating income through some combination of revenue growth and or operating margin expansion. And with each of these three businesses, you know, we think they're very well-positioned businesses, businesses that have attractive growth trajectories still ahead of them and at prices that we don't think fully reflect uh, the opportunity that lies ahead for each of these three businesses. And, you know, these kind of get classified as technology businesses. And there, there are certainly some businesses within technology that fall into the too hard basket for us where, you know, either we don't fully understand the technology itself or how this business is likely to be able to, you know, fend off competition within that technology. But with these three businesses, with Google, with Microsoft, and with Facebook, you know, we have high conviction that you know, we understand all the relevant competitive dynamics that they face. And you know, we believe there are reasons why each of them are benefiting from pretty attractive economic moats and competitive advantages that are likely to persist long into the future. And so um, you know, they, they kind of fit nicely with the type of investors that, that we are, you know, deep knowledge of individual industries and individual businesses. Um, and, you know, we think we were positioned well to capitalize on opportunities when they presented themselves in, in each of these three companies. Okay, let's shift to the short book. We talk uh, a lot about investing with a long-term mindset. So I'm curious, how does that translate to thinking about short positions? Well, we're always looking for businesses that are being mispriced by the market. And so for the short book, we're looking for businesses that investors are currently overpaying for. And that's really a function of having a differentiated view of the future fundamentals of a business. We value businesses for the short book the same way that we value businesses in the long book in that we project the future fundamentals of the business for the next five years. And then we apply a normalized multiple to normalized earnings in year five. But to be clear, there's nothing magical about our models. I think our process ensures that we have a deep understanding of the business and the industry in which it competes. But for the vast majority of shorts, our short thesis is a function of us having a differentiated view of the revenue growth trajectory of a business and or the normalized operating margin profile of a business. And so we're very clear about what our fundamental expectations are when we initiate a short position. And as companies report results over time, these become observable data points and we evaluate whether actual fundamentals are consistent or inconsistent with our short thesis. It's important for us to be objective about this because the risk reward profile of shorts is different than longs. If a business you're short goes to zero, you've made 100%, but that's also your maximum gain. Whereas if your thesis is wrong, you could lose multiples of the price at which you shorted the stock. So the penalty for being wrong tends to be much more significant on shorts than on longs. And therefore properly understanding the range of potential fundamental outcomes matters immensely when we're evaluating potential short positions. On shorts, we really emphasize being approximately right about the future fundamentals of individual businesses. Our estimates of intrinsic value are a function of our projections of future fundamentals. And so it's very important that we have a thorough and accurate understanding of the normalized fundamentals of these businesses. And if we do that well, we tend to be pretty pleased with our ability to add value through stock selection in the short book. So uh, in terms of the short portfolio itself, what's the purpose of the short book or the, or the goal of the short book? Uh, what do we expect from it? And then just related to that, how do you measure success of the overall strategy? 
The short portfolio is designed to be a collection of businesses that are being overpriced by the market and therefore would be expected to underperform the market as a result of being priced above the intrinsic value of the businesses. This collection of overpriced businesses is intended to underperform the Russell 1000 over time. It also reduces the overall market risk associated with the long short strategy. The purest measure of value add through stock selection in the long short strategy is the long short spread or the extent to which our longs outperform our shorts. And you can look at each of the long book and the short book individually relative to the Russell 1000 to see how much alpha is generated in each. Over the long term, the long book needs to outperform the Russell 1000 and the short book or the stocks that were short needs to underperform the Russell 1000. And if you generate a favorable long short spread with each of the long book and the short book contributing alpha relative to the Russell 1000, then you generate favorable risk adjusted returns for investors in the strategy. That's the objective of the strategy. And it's really a function of identifying individual mispriced businesses for each the long book and the short book and ultimately being right. In terms of measuring the success of the strategy, the 60-40 blended benchmark or the exposure adjusted benchmark, which is the secondary benchmark of the strategy, is a reflection of the magnitude of our value add through stock selection. Essentially, we believe that with roughly 60% net exposure on average, over time, we can meaningfully outperform the 60-40 blended benchmark by identifying undervalued businesses for the long book and overvalued businesses for the short book. So when it comes to finding opportunities on the short side, uh, similar to the question about what we're looking for in long opportunities, what are you looking for on the short side? And maybe can you talk through an example of a couple of shorts that are in the portfolio today? We tend to like shorts where the long thesis seems very unappealing to us. If we're valuing a business, it's important for us to understand what the long thesis for that business is. There are plenty of instances in which, even if we don't necessarily subscribe to the long thesis, that doesn't mean we wanna short it. Businesses growing their revenue bases at very high rates tend to fall into this category. We may think investors are overpaying for high revenue growth, but unless we have reason to believe the revenue growth is going to decelerate within a specific time frame, or the normalized unit economics of the business are particularly poor, we're likely not going to get involved until we have reason to believe the revenue growth deceleration is likely to occur in maybe the next two or three years. As I believe I mentioned earlier, for the vast majority of our shorts, our short thesis is a function of us having a differentiated view of the revenue growth trajectory of a business and or the normalized operating margin profile of a business. So let's talk through UPS and Teradata, two current short positions to illustrate risk reward profiles that we viewed as favorable for the short book. UPS is a logistics and delivery company. And you know during 2020 and a good portion of 2021, supply chain constraints created above normalized volumes and pricing for UPS's business that we expect to normalize back to previous levels over the coming years. Uh, Amazon is also a relatively large customer for UPS. Uh, in 2020, Amazon represented just over 13% of UPS's revenue. And in 2021, Amazon was just below 12% of their revenue. Amazon's investing fairly significantly in their own delivery capabilities. And we believe they're likely to also offer those delivery capabilities to third parties. And you know that poses a meaningful headwind for UPS's business. And finally, uh, UPS hired uh, a new CEO uh, in recent years uh, who had been a longtime CFO at Home Depot. And UPS began emphasizing margin expansion uh, pretty heavily. And there's nothing wrong with margin expansion. I mean, we tend to you know, admire businesses that are run uh, in a cost-disciplined fashion, but 
when you look at how a company is growing its operating income base, if you're growing operating income through margin expansion, uh, that's not necessarily a recurring source of operating income growth. Uh, if a business is able to grow its revenue base persistently uh, for many years, you know, that's a much more appealing way to grow operating income. Uh, with UPS, we suspect that they may be being very disciplined on costs in the near term, but once you've taken all the costs out, uh, if revenue growth disappoints, as we suspect that it's likely to, uh, we think that UPS investors may be disappointed uh, with future operating income growth as uh, there's you know, little to no room for incremental margin expansion and rev the revenue growth uh, stagnates. And so Teradata is an example of a little bit different type of short. It's a software company that provides data warehouse software. It's a business that had been at times in the past very statistically cheap and we'd done some work on as a potential long. We never got there, um, but a business where we had some, uh, a substantial amount of historical knowledge. And with Teradata, um, they're sort of overexposed to the wrong portion of the enterprise data warehouse market. And so a lot of enterprise data warehouse is shifting to the cloud. Teradata has told a nice story uh, about their cloud offering, but they have to compete against Snowflake and many other companies that have at least as appealing of enterprise data warehouse offerings in the cloud. And we just don't believe that Teradata is likely to compete successfully for the number of new customers that uh, they need to, um, to justify the current market price. You know, what happened during 2021 is a lot of optimism built about the company's cloud strategy and their ability to compete against some of these cloud native uh, data warehouse companies. Um, you know, given our historical knowledge of the business and you know, our understanding of how challenging it has been for them to win new customers. You know, they've, they've been able to transition some of their legacy on-premise Teradata customers to their cloud offering, but they've had very limited success at winning new customers to Teradata. Um, and you know, we, we just think that the optimism is overdone in terms of their ability to win new customers. And finally, um, you know, it's worth mentioning that changing customer perceptions is also quite challenging. And I think a lot of customers view Teradata as a legacy software provider, not as an innovative, you know, cloud software provider. And, you know, even though, I mean, it's, it's not that Teradata's cloud offering is poor, um, you know, it seems to us to be, you know, very functional. There's, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, but I think they're gonna have a hard time fighting some of the perceptions that they're a legacy vendor trying to retrofit their offering to the cloud. Okay, so to wrap up, I'm curious, uh, are there particular spots in the market today that are pretty ripe for finding short ideas? Well, one of the advantages of having a research team with around 20 analysts and associates, each with deep expertise in given industries, is that we're always looking for opportunity in a lot of different places. And there's always opportunity somewhere, we just have to find it. Most recently, I'd say we found some opportunities shorting businesses that we believe investors are overpaying for as they seek stocks that they perceive to be safe or less economically sensitive. Clorox is a business that we shorted early in Q1 that fits that profile. And JM Smucker Company is a business that we shorted later in Q1 that also fits that profile. And to be clear, we have a company specific short thesis for each, but as we ask ourselves why the market was valuing these businesses at prices above what we believe will be justified by their future fundamentals, it seems to be at least partially because the stocks were perceived to be safe in the short term. Our view is that price always matters. And when we believe others are overpaying for businesses, that can create opportunity for us in the short book. 
Healthcare is another area in which we've been doing a fair amount of digging recently, and we'll see what ultimately comes of that. But part of the appeal of a sector like healthcare is the wide range of businesses and business models within the sector. There are times when rising tides tend to lift most businesses within a sector, and not all of them will generate future fundamentals to justify current market prices. It's our job to identify some of the businesses that the market's valuing too generously. Technology served up some of those opportunities in recent years. There are plenty of reasons to like many technology businesses, but there are at least two important caveats. First, there's no business so good that there's not a price at which it's a poor investment. And second, a mediocre business tends not to warrant a premium valuation just because it happens to be in the technology sector. Plenty of market participants seem to have forgotten one or both of those realities during 2020 and 2021. We were able to benefit from that at times in the short book. I also think there are some businesses that, despite the stock prices declining a lot this year, that doesn't make them cheap relative to any relevant fundamental metric. And there tend to be investors who think that just because a stock is down, say, 30%, it must be cheap. That's just not necessarily the case. Eventually, stock prices will reflect the normalized fundamentals that the businesses generate. And with the passage of time, fundamentals become observable data points. So we can look at what we were projecting for a given business and what fundamentals that business ultimately reports and evaluate how right we were about the future fundamentals. So despite the market declining year to date, there's still plenty of potential short opportunities for us to dig into. And trust me, we're going about it with a great deal of intensity and focus. Well, that was a really helpful overview of the long short strategy. Uh, Nate, thanks for taking the time today. Yep, thank you, Brian.